Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. We've been spending five weeks working through the book of Jonah, and I'm really glad to be here with you tonight. We're right in the middle of that. This is week three out of five weeks working through the story of Jonah, this amazing bigger-than-life story in the Old Testament. And something happened this week that I found that I hadn't found before, and I found this week this unique collection of poems from the 1970s by a poet by the name of Thomas Carlyle. And Thomas Carlyle wrote a set of poems about the book of Jonah. Who knew? So this guy wrote these four poems, one for each chapter of the book of Jonah. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but I wanted to read the first one to you to kind of get us back into our Jonah mood for the night. I like the way he words things. I'm going to set it up and explain that he wrote these poems in first person, meaning that he's writing Jonah's thoughts towards God. And let's get our minds back in Jonah mode by reading this poem tonight. So the title of the poem is Let's Cool Down, which again, saying that to God sounds like an interesting point of view. So let's read this together. I know a better way to circumvent your silly streak of mixing love with righteous judgment. All I need to do is take the next flight west beyond your jurisdiction. This will give you time for sober second thoughts to wear off this kick of simple-minded kindness. It's kind of intense to speak that tone, but I enjoyed finding this this week because I do feel like it's very accurate description of what Jonah's attitude was towards God. I want to read that first sentence again. I know a better way to circumvent your silly streak of mixing love with righteous judgment. If tonight's talk had a title, it would be Mixing Love with Righteous Judgment. I love how God mixes love with righteous judgment. So I had an issue this week at the elementary pickup line on Monday. <laughs> Preach. So <laughs> um, I have a good friend. His name is Sean Fallis. He used to work here as the youth pastor. And occasionally we touch base. And he reached out to me on Monday via text with a question. And I prefer talking over texting. And so I was kind of waiting in my Monday to find some time where I could focus on a conversation and give Sean a call back. Hitherto, therefore, the elementary pickup line which takes at least 20 minutes. And so as I was leaving my house to go wait in line, I thought, this is my moment. I'm going to call Sean. I'm going to check in with him. And so I did. And so I am talking to him on the phone. And as I pull up, I realize that the line is actually much farther back than it normally is. And my access street didn't put me at the end of the line. It actually pushed me into a parking lot across the street where I was able to turn around and then rejoin the line. Now, I am self-confessing to this whole room and to anyone listening to the podcast that when I re-entered this line, I was not at the end of the line. There was about 40 cars lined up, and it put me in about car number 37. What my brain is thinking at the moment is I'm thinking, 
I like Sean Follis. We're talking about ministry and kids and preaching and everything is going wonderfully until in my rearview mirror, I see a woman walking through the street. And this woman's wearing all black and my first thought was, she must be a cop. But then my brain says, no, you can't wear a Harley Davidson t-shirt and be a cop. So she is walking with purpose down the street, not the curbside, she is in the street. So I rolled on my window while I'm on the phone with Sean to make sure that this, this woman is okay. And guess what? She was coming to talk to me. So she says, did you not see the end of the line? You're supposed to be four cars further back. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you what I said, what I did, and what I thought. So what I said was, I'm sorry. If you're ever in a conflictual conversation, I highly recommend starting off with the words, I'm sorry. We're all flawed people. If you can find a reason to apologize, it makes it really difficult for people to keep yelling at you. So I apologized to her. And then as soon as I did, she walked back to her vehicle. And then I'm going to tell you what I did. What I did is I pulled out of the carpool line and I did two U-turns and put myself back at the very end of the line. Why did I do that? Because Jesus said, if someone asks you for your shirt, you give them their coat as well. And so I moved back there. This woman was creating the image of God. And one day she might sit down in life together and I needed to do my best to make a better impression. If you're here tonight, welcome to church. We're friends now. <laughs> now, what did I think? What I thought was this is going to make a really great illustration about justice. So justice is administering fairness. It is finding opportunities to make things right, to take something that is good and let it be rewarded, and it is to take something that is bad and to face consequences. If you are walking down the street and you see a group of fifth grade boys and one of those fifth grade boys is punching one of the other kids, you have two choices to make. You can either walk away and do nothing. I would argue that doing nothing would be a choice of apathy or a choice of self-preservation. Or you can choose to do something. And if you choose to do something, you are making a choice of justice. You are choosing to administer fairness. So here's the problem, and here's one of the biggest problems facing our culture today. When we begin to administer fairness, the first question is, who's fairness? Who decides what's fair and what's not fair? Even in this room of like-minded Christians, there are still many subjects that we would fall into different categories of what should be punished and what should not be punished. Was that woman overreacting to what was happening with the lines, or did I deserve to be punished for breaking my line rules? Who makes those decisions? Who's in charge of what's fair? Well, I'm really thankful that it's not me. I'm thankful that it's not you. And I'm really thankful that it's not Jonah. Let's turn tonight in our Bibles or scroll away to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to start with verses 1 and verse 2. The Bible says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Can we pray as we start into God's word tonight? Father, we love you. We thank you that you're here with us tonight, and I pray that you would speak to us through the story of Jonah. 
I pray that you would help each one of us find a little bit of Jonah in us. That even in this imperfect man, we would see our imperfections and you would allow us to be made more perfect by the power of of your Holy Spirit. We need you. We trust you to guide our thinking and our emoting tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, question. Is this the first time for the word of the Lord to come to Jonah? No, it tells us right there this is the second time for the word of the Lord to come to Jonah. What happened the first time? Well, the first time Jonah ran to Tarshish. He was not scared of the people of Nineveh. He was scared that God would have mercy on the people of Nineveh. Jonah hops into a boat, and as he's traveling, a great storm comes upon him. And there are sailors, they are ungodly sailors, and these ungodly sailors turn to God, repent, and they discover that the harm that has come upon them is because of Jonah. Jonah is thrown into the ocean. So then Jonah is transported all the way by a great fish back to where he had started from. He's now traveled 500 miles in deep into the landlocked area of Assyria, where he has now arrived at the capital of Assyria, the greatest power that existed at this time in the capital city of Nineveh. The writer of Jonah describes Nineveh as this larger-than-life city. It would have been, at this time in history, the largest city in the world. He walks into this city, and if I was to describe the characteristic of the people of Assyria and the characteristics of the city of Nineveh, I would use two words, and the words would be brilliant and brutal. These people were geniuses. The way that they organized themselves, there are military people who still study the Assyrians today, and the way that they were so smart in how they would conquer lands, assimilate new people, and continue to expand their territory. The way that they organized their city, the architects that built these great cities. They were brilliant and they were also brutal. One of the habits that they would have in sieges is that they created these giant ramps. They would bring these huge ramps up against the walls of a city that they were sieging so that they could find ways to get in. And as they would conquer people, as they would catch people, as they would be able to capture people, they would then take the bodies of the people that they had captured and they would impale them on spears. If you think about the cross of Jesus Christ, this is hundreds of years before the cross of the Romans, and they would just take single poles, impale people, and then put those bodies around the city. So as you were being sieged by the Assyrian people day after day, you would see your loved ones, your relatives, hanging out outside the city to slowly tear away your drive to survive. These were brutal, brilliant people. Jonah walks into this city, and as he walks into the city, Jonah begins to preach. And he preaches, this is my opinion, the worst sermon ever. Can we read this? This is Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. The Bible says, on the day that Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed, and that is the whole sermon. That's it. It's eight words in English, but it's only five words in Hebrew. So in Hebrew, if you did a word-for-word translation, it would read like this, yet 40 days Nineveh overthrown. That's the whole thing, and I think it's a terrible sermon. 
I want to point out, I want to explain to you why I think it's a terrible sermon. Because there are so many things that Jonah is not saying. If you were talking to people who did not know God, if you were talking to people that you hoped would repent, there are so many better things that should be included in this sermon. For example, who is God? These people don't know who God is. This isn't explained to them. He's not taking this care, he's not taking care in what he's saying. They've never met Jonah, and they've never met the God of Israel. He doesn't explain who is God. He doesn't explain why is God punishing them. They're being threatened with punishment, but why? The people of Nineveh aren't doing, they're just doing what many Americans do. They're just living their lives by their own assessment of fairness. They've decided that the good things should go in the good pile, and evil things should go in the evil pile, They don't think that they're sinning. They don't think that they're doing anything evil. They don't think that they're doing anything wrong. The other thing this sermon does not explain is what is God's objective? Why? Why are they being warned? What are they supposed to do with this news? Is there any hope? Is there a reaction that they're supposed to have? None of this is explained. It's five words, yet 40 days, Nineveh overthrown. This would be like walking into Myers and screaming, yet 40 days, Myers overthrown. It's not enough information. He's not saying enough things. This would be like if Pastor Brooks preached his best sermon ever and nothing happened, and then some grumpy person yelled from the back pew, yet 40 days, Oak Creek overthrown. And then the whole room started running to the altar. This is the shock of what happens that as Jonah is preaching the worst sermon ever, he gets the best response ever. Watch what happens as the people of Nineveh respond. Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 says, the people of Nineveh believed God's message and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. How did they know to do this? Jonah didn't tell them. He didn't explain this well. This has to have been a spiritual intuition. I love how this verse says the people of Nineveh believed God's message. It was not Jonah's message. It was God's message. They hear it and they feel immediately compelled to fast and to put on burlap to express their sorrow. If you've never fasted before or if it's been a long time, I want to highly encourage you to pick a meal sometime in the next week and instead of eating, take that time to pray. This is what fasting is. And there is an amazingly deep power in this sentence. God, I need you more than food. The people of Nineveh hear God's message. They believe it. And they start saying, God, I need you more than food. Burlap is a symbol of poverty and humility. It is the practice of taking off the nice or beautiful or comfortable clothes that you might have and replacing it with burlap. And in this culture, it was a symbol that everyone understood. And yet, no one told them to do this. They had a spiritual intuition of how to respond. You know, we're, we're collecting the used shoes for the Souls for Jesus, which is an awesome, great program. I want to offer you another possibility. God might tell you to put your best 
pair of shoes in that box. Your favorite pair of shoes, your most expensive pair of shoes. Sacrificing for God is a deep power. There is power in this sentence, God, I need you more than wealth. The people of Nineveh hear the message of God, they believe it, and they start saying, God, I need you more than wealth. Now, what the king does is just mind-boggling. The king himself is on his grand throne, and the Bible tells us that the king got off of his throne, and the king himself took off his royal robes, and the king put on burlap. This is crazy. This man is the most powerful man in the world at this time. He is the king of the most powerful nation. And when he hears what the people are doing, when he hears God's message, he believes it, and he abdicates his throne. He instantly understands, I'm not supposed to be sitting here. God's supposed to be sitting here. And so I'm going to get off my throne. This is a shocking response. No one could have seen this coming. No one could have expected this. The king says, I'm not in charge anymore. God is. And then the king releases this decree. Can we read the decree that the king releases? Jonah 3, 7 and 8 says, No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Even the animals get saved. This is crazy. These terrible, brilliant, and brutal people who've been so stubborn in their ways change their minds and even the animals are supposed to be dressed in humility. The whole nation shuts down because something amazing has happened. In this last sentence here, you see the English word turn. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. This word turn in Hebrew is the word shuv. And I want to explain to you what this word means. In Hebrew, the word shuv means to pivot in 180 degrees. So if I was walking towards something and I realized that I was on a, a dead-end path, a bad path, I'm going to take my feet and I'm going to pivot. I'm going to shuv in a completely different direction than where I had been going. This is what walking with Christ feels like. If you are someone who desires to live a righteous life, let me tell you, you're not going to be perfect at it. You and I are going to keep making mistakes. We're going to keep finding ourselves in unrighteous possibilities, on unrighteous paths. And when I find myself in that place, I'm going to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit as I learn to listen to him. And when he speaks to me, when he says, hey, Dan, you're walking down an unrighteous path, that I then have the opportunity to shuv, to then realize that I am on a place and going in a direction I should not be going, and I can take a 180-degree pivot, and I can shuv into another direction. This is exactly what happens to the people of Nineveh. God speaks a message, they believe, and then they turn they shuv in a 100-degree pivot to the completely different direction than the direction that they were heading in. The entire of the city of Nineveh makes a pivot. Let's see what happens next in verse 10. 
When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Can we go back and talk about the fifth graders in our opening example? So you're walking down the road and you see some fifth graders and one fifth grader is punching one of the other kids. I gave you two options. The first option was to do nothing, which we decided was a choice of apathy or a choice of self-preservation. And the other option was to do something, a choice of justice. Here's my question. Which one of those choices is an act of love? Well, it, it can't be the first. Doing nothing can't be love. If I see this happening and I decide just to walk by, I'm giving permission for this behavior just to keep on existing, for these fifth graders to live into a world where people can just punch in the face and nothing happens. If you think about the violence in our city or the violence in our nation, just to say, well, there's not really anything I can do, can't be an act of love. Love has to compel action. Love is actually the catalyst for all justice. Love compels us to do something, to look at this fifth grader and have love towards both the fifth grader who's doing the punching and the one who is being punched. And if I love those people, I cannot let them continue to live in a world where this is okay. And I have this passion, I have this unstoppable desire to administer fairness, to see justice happen in the world that they're living in. Justice should be an act of love. Now, let me tell you, let me warn you, if you're going into this world as a bearer of justice and you are doing it with a revengeful attitude, if you are doing it with a hateful attitude, I'm going to be the person who is going to pay back evil with evil. I am going to bring justice. This is not God's picture. Justice should be motivated by love. Justice should be an act of love. And when it comes to your heavenly Father, his justice is always an act of love. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, think about this. Who's the person who's giving the everlasting life, the eternal life? Well, that, that's God, right? He's the one bringing all of that good stuff. But what about the perishing? So if everyone who believes doesn't perish, what about for those who don't believe? Who's enforcing the perishing? Well, that's, that's also God. You see, because God had the same choice that you had with the fifth graders. He can either choose to stand back from this world and let evil destroy evil, let everything run the way that it would run without him, but as we've said, that can't be love. And in God's love for the world, he is compelled to be a just God. He loves mixing love with righteous judgment. And so when he comes into this world, he comes in as a just God administering whose fairness? His fairness. As the one person who is worthy of that job of the one person who is worthy of knowing what 
good things go in the good pile and what evil things go in the evil pile, what things should be punished and what things should not be punished. He's the only one worthy of that title, and his love for this world compels him to act in justice. God could just stand back and let all of us destroy all of us, but his love compels us to justice and to get involved. God was going to destroy the city of Nineveh because God's love compels his justice. But when repentance enters onto the stage, something miraculous happens, and that is grace. I read uh, Jonah chapter 3 to my kids earlier this week at breakfast, first because I needed multitask, and secondly because they had some things they needed to repent of. And so we're reading through Jonah chapter 3. We get to this last verse, and in this last verse, there are four words that stuck out to my kids, and I want to see if you can guess which words stuck out to them. So I'm going to reread verse 10. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. The four words that stuck out to my kids was, he changed his mind. And one of my kids goes, hey, uh, hold the phone here, Dad. God, all-knowing God, I can see the future, God. How in the world is God changing his mind? That, that doesn't make sense. How can God change his mind. And what my kid bumped into is kind of one of these beautiful grand truths of the universe that God has created, is that with every person that God made, every person in this room, God has gifted you with this awesome ability, and it's called free will. That God has given you an ability to choose, and we can see this work itself out in the people of Nineveh. Because in their brilliant and brutal minds, in their evilness, they are on a path. And they are walking straight into a wall of justice. In God's love, he was compelled to administer fairness. And the fairness for their evil acts was destruction. And so they are walking straight into a wall of God's justice. And yet, just at the right time, a man named Jonah comes into their city and preaches the worst sermon that's ever been preached. And they get to have a choice. They get to make a decision. Are they going to run into the wall of God's justice? Or are they going to shuv? Are they going to make a 180-degree pivot? And when they make that pivot, when they turn around, when they repent of their evil ways, God does something new. God introduces them to his grace, and God changes his mind. This is the greatest gift. It is the superpower that every single one of you have. You have the power to change God's mind. So whether or not it was 60 years ago or 20 years ago, or whether or not God is working in your heart right now as we speak, every single one of us has a free will, and every single one of us was walking straight into the wall of God's justice. That in your sin, in your mistakes, 
Sin has both earthly consequences and it has eternal consequences. So when I think about sinning, I think about damage that is caused to yourself and to the people that are around you. God has designed how life should work, and when we don't live life according to God's laws, that's sin, and sin is God's warning because sin is going to cause damage and hurt in your life and in the lives of the people that are around you. Those are the earthly consequences of sin, and the eternal consequences of sin is separation from God. And so as I am going through life, as I have committed sins, I am walking straight into a wall of God's justice, and yet God has gifted me with a choice. Am I going to run into this wall, or am I going to shuv? And to every person who would be so blessed to have the opportunity to repent and to turn of their ways, they have this amazing superpower you have the ability to change God's mind. And when you do, his grace shows up. And suddenly the destruction that was supposed to be on Nineveh, the destruction that was supposed to be on your life, is lifted from you. And God brings you into something new. He brings you into right relationship with him. He brings you into a good and just relationship with a loving and forgiving and compassionate God who wants to see all people to know him, all people to be saved, so that those would not perish but would have everlasting, that would have eternal life and be eternally connected with God, reunited with him. That's my prayer for you tonight. That's my prayer for the people that we have in our lives who we're praying for. Lord, I love you. I thank you that you're here in this room tonight, and I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would allow us to be in awe of your grace one more time. I thank you that you have gifted each one of us in this room with the ability to choose. And I pray that you would allow us to make the choice to turn away from sin and to walk towards you and to place our trust in you. I pray, God, as I'm, as I'm preaching this sermon, I can't help but think of the people in my life who have not made that choice yet, of people in my life who are heading towards a wall of your justice. And I pray that you would have mercy on them. I pray for uh, your friends and family, of people that would be on your heart tonight, of people who need to make a turn towards grace. I pray that you would uh, have wisdom. I pray that God would speak to you and allow you to have the words that you need. I pray that God would give you his mind in prayer. I pray that you would allow people to turn to you and people to have a new relationship with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're here with us tonight. I thank you that you have given us this broken hero in the character of Jonah. I pray that you would teach us and allow us to see the goodness of your love. I pray that the love that you have shown to each one of us would compel us to be people of justice in this world. We thank you for this night, and we pray that you'll be blessed by it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.